This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program this evening. It is Thursday, of course, and we're going to start the day as we have for the past really about three months now with our Alabama coronavirus update. So we are going to go ahead and give you the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health. So you can see here that these are the latest numbers and Alabama has 18,766 confirmed cases. We currently have 234,993 that have been tested, 651 deaths, and 1,929 hospitalizations. Now, I do want to give a quick update on this as well because there is a possibility that some of these numbers are not entirely accurate, and the Alabama Department of Health itself actually issued a warning on this, so... Just to let you know what they said, according to them, there have been some issues because nationally there's been such a high demand of tests that some of the ones that they have have not yet been processed. And so I'm not sure exactly what that looks like because if they've already issued the test but just haven't got the results back from them, they're probably just not counting the test because tested would assume that the test has been completed, and if the test has not been completed, there are probably more tests that are actually being reported than the ones that we have. But let's say it's even the worst-case scenario. Let's say that what happened is, because of the, the testing and the database, they haven't been able to get back how many confirmed cases they've had. That really only affects the confirmed cases and the test numbers themselves. Because if the system, at least at the national level, is overwhelmed and they're not able to process the test as quickly as they would like to, or as many as they would like to, or as many as they have, then what is probably going on is that they have the test already done and they have the uh, test you know, taken, they just haven't been able to sort out the results yet. It's probably giving us somewhat lower case numbers and somewhat lower testing numbers, so take that with a little grain of salt today. We're going to give you the numbers that they gave us, but it might be lower than it actually is. However, the thing that is important to keep in mind is that will have virtually no effect on the hospitalizations or the deaths for a couple of reasons. First of all, as we've talked about many times on this program, hospitalizations and deaths tend to lag a little bit. And the other reason that that's probably not the case is because it's very unlikely that somebody would get to the point to where they are being hospitalized and or die without knowing whether or not they have the coronavirus. They could exact the test and figure out exactly uh, what they have. They could tell by the symptoms and at least say that they suspect that COVID-19 is responsible. So there's a number of reasons why if it does affect the hospitalizations or deaths at all, it would be incredibly minuscule if there at all. And, and I doubt that it even has any effect on it unless this is something that's been going on for weeks and weeks. And there's just no reason to believe that that is the case, especially since the notice just went up today. This is probably something that's just happened in the past couple of days. And when you look at the fact that our testing, if you saw and, and you noticed today, and we'll look at the chart in a second, that our testing actually dropped way off. And so that is to be expected if they have a large volume of tests and are needing to take a little extra time to process them. 
but we haven't seen a massive outlier for our hospitalizations or deaths or really even cases. So it looks like testing numbers are going to be primarily what is affected by that. Let's go ahead and, uh, oh, uh, one last thing I did want to mention before we move on to this. There are 11,395 presumed recoveries. You saw that on the graphic a second ago. They update those weekly. And today just happened to be the day that it got updated. So this is really good news because it means a lot of the cases that we do have in the state of Alabama have already recovered. Another thing that is important to understand about this, because this is really important as well, uh, the, it's probably a low ball. Because I'm guessing what would happen is because of the virus's incubation period of 14 days, they're probably only counting people that they know for a fact did not die, and they're only counting people that, you know, made it past that 14-day period, which means there's probably a lot of people in the state that got it recently that have not quite reached that 14-day threshold, but have actually already recovered and the virus already ran its course. Typically speaking, this thing takes about 9 or 10 days to get out of your system. 14 is the incubation period because they want to err on the side of caution and they want to make sure that it actually is 14 days. And, and there also may be days where they were asymptomatic. In other words, let's say you've got the virus for three or four days and then you start experiencing symptoms on like day five, day six, something like that. So you think you might have it, you go in to get tested and then they confirm that you have the virus on day six, day seven. Okay, well, that means you're going to be recovered in like three or four days from the point that you actually know for a fact you have the virus. But yet, they have to start that timer on the day that it was confirmed that you got the virus. So even though you've probably been recovered by at least 10 days by the time that they actually count you as recovered they still have to wait and make sure because they don't know for sure when you got the virus, how long you were asymptomatic, all of that. And so what's probably happening here is that 11,000 number is actually probably significantly lower than it actually is. And that's one of the reasons they put the qualifier on it. They call it presumed recovered. That's why, because there's probably a lot more that actually have recovered uh, than the ones that we're seeing. So, the fatality rate also, that's an important part of this as well. Our fatality rate in the state of Alabama has dropped to 3.47, which I, I realize the real average is probably a lot closer to anywhere based on the experts that, that I've been reading. Uh, it's really probably a lot closer to anywhere between 0 0.2 and 0. Point, or sorry, yeah, 0 0.2 and 0.6%. That's what a lot of the experts are speculating right now. And so it's probably a lot closer to that. But here in the state of Alabama so far, you compare the amount of cases that we've had versus the amount of deaths that we've had. It is 3.47%, but it's also important to note that we got a slow start on testing. And so that brought our numbers down early on. And remember that people can get tested for this multiple times. They may think they have it. They get tested. Turns out they don't. They may have to come back later. And there are probably people like myself, even though I haven't been tested, there are probably people that do have uh, some pre-existing conditions like I do and probably out of an abundance of caution got tested multiple times if they thought that they had symptoms. So that's another thing that is probably playing into this. So there's the fact that the fatality rate is a lot lower than it was because I can remember at one point we were way up in the fours and I believe at one point we were even approaching six. So the fact that it's down to 3.47 is actually a really good sign for the state of Alabama. Let's go ahead and look at our new cases. 
for today. So you'll see there on the graph the new cases. Past four days have been real good because you see it ratcheting up pretty consistently and doing so, if you're looking at it long term, over the course of several months, there's a little bit of a lull there in the middle, and then it starts really cranking up, and then it just drops off the map the past four days. That's a really good sign, and maybe because of the glitch in having confirmed cases that that might have made today a little bit less than it probably was in actuality, but that it's doubtful that it's going to make a massive, massive difference. So may make some difference but probably not a gigantic difference, and that's the important thing. Now, let's go ahead and look, because it is Thursday, we're going to go ahead and do our 7-day and our 14-day averages and compare how we're doing. Our 7-day averages on new cases, because remember, we had 212 today, so a little bit up from yesterday, but overall, you saw the chart just a second ago, we had that one really big spike where we had about 650, but in the 4 days since then, we've had very, very few cases well below average which would mean that our seven-day average for this past week is 351 new cases per day. But our seven-day daily average over the previous seven days was 432, which means we have decreased a substantial amount in a very short amount of time. We have lost 81 daily average cases in the course of two weeks. So... That's really good news. And then let's look at the 14-day. And the 14-day is really important this week because you'll remember that it was 14 days ago that the newest safer-at-home orders, I think, is the newest moniker of this particular set of rules and regulations. The safer-at-home orders were amended, and they basically opened up the state the way that Georgia and Florida and a lot of other states did. We were a little late on that. Kay Ivy was dragging her feet a little bit, which, you know, she's 170. It makes sense. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, when we look at the 14-day average, remember that the most recent 14 days are 14 days where pretty much all of the shutdown orders were relaxed. And then the 14 days prior to that, they all looked pretty much the same. So looking at the 14-day comparisons for these numbers is going to be very, very informative as to how effective the government-mandated shutdown was. Now, granted, as I've been saying a long time, and keep this in mind when we're looking at the statistics, I think we've really been open for about a month. I think that the average Alabamian has been going about their normal life more or less for about a month. And so I think that that's not a great indicator. I think that actually we've been opened far longer than the government official reopening is. But let's go ahead and look at that to gauge specifically the effectiveness of a government-mandated shutdown. So the 14-day average for new cases in the state of Alabama for the previous 14 days, 391. The 14 days before that, when we still had a shutdown going on, well, technically, we still have one going on now, but the, the much stricter shutdown where you couldn't go to church, you couldn't have gatherings of more than 10 people, that previous 14-day period, 314, which means since the state opened up officially, there has been an increase in cases, which we all expected, we all figured that was going to happen, but only by 77 a day. That's not a massive increase. It's significant. It's not like, oh, that's nothing. It's not like, oh, well, they're basically the same. No. I mean, 77 of 391 
or sorry, 314, that, that's a substantial increase. That's a, a pretty good percentage, but it's not like it doubled or tripled or anything. So 77 being, uh, you know what, that that's what, about a third increase, a little less than a third increase. So we're looking at realistically like a, a 25% increase maybe. So not statistically insignificant, but also certainly not, you know, a, a massive skyrocketing of numbers. Now, let's go ahead, and frankly, I'm surprised that it's that small. Even though I thought that the shutdowns were wrong, I thought that they shouldn't have had them in the first place, I was kind of surprised that there was not a bigger increase after the shutdowns ended. But there you go. Now, uh, let's go ahead and look at the new test in the state of Alabama. And you'll see here with the new coronavirus test, that uh, we had a really big day yesterday, not so much today. And that really big day yesterday is probably offset by the fact that we had no testing the day before and they just got reported late, so it's probably not even as big as it looks right there. But today, we only had about 3,000 new tests, which is pretty low for us. That's significantly below average for the state of Alabama. But let's, again, remember that we were talking earlier that the Alabama Department of Public Health said that they were having issues processing it, and that's probably the reason why we've got way less tests than we normally do. So let's look at our 7-day and 14-day averages for testing. All right, so the new test, the 7-day average for this week, 4,930, and the previous 7-day average was 3,935, so Almost a thousand more tests per day. It was 995, so darn close to a thousand. A thousand more tests per day in the the most recent 14 day period than the or sorry the most recent seven day period versus the one before it. So in the past week we've really ratcheted up testing overall. Even though today was kind of a big bust for testing, which means that we've been testing an even more uh, an even more significant amount earlier in the week if if we had that big an increase despite the fact that today was very lackluster. And when you're looking at the 14-day average, it's a lot closer to the same. So this previous two weeks, we've had 4,433. Now the 14 days before that, when we were still under a lockdown, was 4,126. So we have increased testing by 307 in the previous 14 days, but, you know, it's it's a bump, but it's like, you know, 5% maybe. So not a huge deal. And then let's go ahead and look at new hospitalizations in the state of Alabama. You can see there on hospitalizations, we have 21 today, which is uh, slightly up from yesterday, but not you know, mind-boggling or anything. This previous week, just like cases, just like everything else, have been fairly mild compared to what we've become accustomed to. And they've been in a downward trajectory for a while now. We've been going down on hospitalizations for some time. And I really do think that this is primarily because originally the people that were getting hospitalized were people that just through both just being unfortunate and also because they were more susceptible to the, to the disease, they were probably getting hospitalized. And uh, it was the people that were most vulnerable that were getting it early on because they were more susceptible to it. Now what you're probably seeing is that a lot more of the new cases that we have, even though they have increased some, and we talked about that a second ago, 
it's primarily healthy people that aren't going to be nearly as affected by it and thus don't need hospitalization. And that's why even though our case numbers have actually been on the rise, our hospitalizations have been on the decline. I can't prove that. That's just a theory that makes sense and it, it makes the numbers all, uh, it, it sort of helps you understand why that would be the case. So it's a possible explanation. I don't know if it's the actual actually accurate one, but it is. it seems to be the most logical one to me. So our seven-day average for hospitalizations, the seven-day average for this week is 23. The previous seven-day average is 31. Now, that's substantial. That's a decrease of eight cases per day in a seven-day period. So our hospitalizations are way down, at least from the previous week. The 14-day average tells a slightly different story. So the 14-day average for the previous 14 days, 27. The 14-day average for the two weeks before that, again, this is when we were under lockdown. That ended on May the 12th, so that's a, a clear break. It was exactly the day of the lockdown that we're separating this out. So the 14 days before that, when we were still under lockdown, 26. Which means we have increased by one per day. So basically the same, not exactly the same, but basically the same. The hospitalizations in the recent 14 days, they're up a little, up by one person per day, but by no means something that should cause panic or think that, you know, our healthcare system is going to be overrun or anything like that, which also goes to show that when it comes to hospitalizations, the shutdowns really didn't have much of an effect at all. Um... I mean, we didn't exhaust the system by opening back up. We didn't run out of medical supplies by opening back up. None of those things are true. And so uh, it's really hard looking at these numbers, especially in the state of Alabama, to justify going on a government-mandated shutdown. And that actually becomes far more evident when you look at the deaths. Because remember, saving lives was always the mantra of why we were engaging in these shutdowns. And I agreed with it to a degree. We do want to make sure that we're cautious. I think that that should be a decision left up to the individual citizen, not the government. However, I did agree with the idea of staying home and trying to social distance and all of that stuff to save lives to keep our healthcare system from being overwhelmed. But according to this, government mandates had absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, you know, if you're looking at the numbers, the opposite is true. So in the previous week, this seven-day period, we had an average of daily deaths, 8.7. And in the seven-day period before that, our daily deaths, 8.7. So even if you include the tens marker there, so... Point seven. We're we're not only less than one death off per day. We'd have to go to the hundredths position just to see a difference in the seven day averages here. So exactly the same, basically. Statistically speaking, we've had eight point seven deaths per day both this week and last week. There's been no change. Now in the previous, we'll look at the fourteen day average. There has been a significant change. Now remember. Most recent 14 days, no lockdown. The lockdown has been mostly lifted. This, the 14 days before that, we were still basically in full lockdown. So comparing those two, 
the seven, the average, as I just told you, 8.7. So it was 8.7 for both weeks. So obviously the 14-day average is also going to be 8.7. The 14 days before that, when we were still under lockdown, 12.9. That means since the lockdowns were lifted, the state of Alabama has actually seen a decrease in deaths by 4.2. And by the way, that's just specifically people dying from COVID-19. That is in no way looking at the overall big picture of how many people's lives did we save that we're dealing with things like domestic abuse and depression and all kinds of other issues and all kinds of other deaths that resulted from the government-mandated shutdown. I don't even think it's possible to measure that, quite frankly. I mean, I'd love to see those numbers, but I don't know that we'll ever get an actual clear picture on how many extra lives were lost. But it turns out, not only were we losing those people, not only was that there sort of this intangible idea that people were dying as a result of this that had nothing to do with actually contracting the virus, turns out less people have been dying from the virus since we opened up. Now, I'm not saying that loosening the restrictions and coming out of lockdown is the reason less people are dying. I don't think that's actually the case. I think that's what what is happening is you're seeing the natural progression of what would have happened if we never had a shutdown in the first place. If we had never had a government-mandated shutdown, I'm guessing the numbers would look almost exactly the same. I do wish that we had some kind of alternate universe machine where we could retroactively look and say, okay, what if we had done this and seen a difference in Alabama shutdown and Alabama not shutdown? But I'm saying, based on the best projections, the best guesses that we have, it doesn't appear as though the government shutdown saved anybody. And in fact, looking at it now and and looking at the numbers that we have, Alabama's had less deaths from this virus since we opened back up. I don't think that's because we opened back up. I'm just saying that this idea that, oh, the second that we open up, there's going to be all kinds of deaths. Remember that I believe it was the Atlantic that said our, our neighbor to the east was saying, that uh, what was the headline? Oh yeah, um, Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice. That was the headline. That was what everybody was saying. Well, well, if you open this up, you're a heartless monster that wants people to die. Uh, no, since Alabama's opened up, we've actually dramatically decreased the death rate of COVID nineteen. I think that's about as cut and dry as you can make it. So. Based on all of this, and I've been looking at the numbers and they've been trending basically in the same direction more or less with it with a handful of blips and exceptions. They've been more or less trending in the same direction for the past two weeks. And, and I just gave you a rundown of exactly what all that looks like. And because of that, I'm seriously contemplating making this the last coronavirus update. Maybe we'll do something weekly, maybe you know, once in a while we come back and revisit the numbers and look at how everything's going, but I don't really see the necessity of it. And I'm guessing if I, as a person that, you know, has invested all this time and research into it, don't see the, the interest in continuing forward, you probably don't either, which is a really good thing because you know what that means? We pretty much beat this thing. And frankly, we beat it without getting a whole lot of scratches on us. I mean, obviously the fact that there are Currently, over 600 people, 651, I believe, people in the state of Alabama that have died, presumably from this virus. I think when we do more research on this, we'll find out that that may have been an overly inflated number. And that's not me saying that. That's Dr. Burks. 
But I think that we may, with upon further investigation and review, find out that that is a slightly elevated number. But it seems as though not only did we wind up winning this thing, it was a blowout. I mean, we didn't come anywhere in the ballpark, not even close to the projections for the state of Alabama that were offered at the onset of this thing. So um, not only were the, the models wrong, they were not even close to right. And so I think that this is probably going to wind up being our last daily update, which uh, good job, gang. Well done, state of Alabama. It looks like we've more or less beaten this thing. We certainly flattened the curve. That happened like a month ago. Uh, that probably happened by the end of April easily. But not only have we done that, we've even gone way further past that and done even much better than that, where we really have seen very few deaths overall from this thing as a whole. I mean, when you consider a state of Alabama that, that has 4.88 million people and we lost 651, I mean, yes, of course, any death is tragic, but that's a incredibly minute percentage of our population comparatively. So moving on to some local news, I did want to issue this. There is a, uh, there was a lot of, back and forth and, and talk about the riots, obviously. There is a organization that has come out and actually been critical of Birmingham's mayor, Mayor Randall Woodfin, and banning the protest in Birmingham. So if you've been keeping up with this, if you've been watching this show, you know that there have been multiple violent riots, not protest, riots, in Birmingham. There have been a handful of violent incidents as well in connection with the protest in Montgomery, the same thing has happened in Huntsville. I have yet to see anything out of Mobile. I'm assuming that something has happened down there, but I've not seen it. Maybe I just haven't been looking hard enough. I don't know. But nonetheless, so the, the major cities in Alabama are experiencing some issues with this. And the ACLU actually came out against Randall Woodfin because they are upset that he has sort of blanketly banned protest and enacted the curfew to curtail any protest, that sort of thing. So this was the response from Randall Marshall, who is the executive director of the ACLU of Alabama. And I quote, Banning all demonstrations, marches, vigils, or parades is a government overreach, plain and simple. It is unconstitutional to retaliate against protesters by banning future protests because of past protest activity. Assuming that because some property destruction occurred over the weekend and in other cities does not mean the government officials can assume future protests will be the same and ban them. Here's the thing. I agree. From a legal standpoint, from a political standpoint... From a human rights standpoint, with the right to assemble, which is something that is guaranteed by our Constitution, there's nothing wrong with that argument. Even though I don't get to say this very often, I agree with the ACLU. I think they're 100% right on this. It is not right to tell a group of protesters that because there have been other protests that turned violent in the past, we're going to restrict your right of assembly here because of what happened a couple days ago. Or even what happened last night. They may be completely different groups. 
even if they're protesting the same thing. Sometimes people from different sides of the political spectrum can protest the same thing. Maybe they have different motivations, but they're protesting on the same grounds. You can't just say to one group of protesters, as long as they are remaining peaceful, that you can't protest here because we've had other violent protests here in the past over the same issue. That You can't do that. That's not a thing. That's punishing people for something they didn't do. Now, the second they turn violent, oh yeah, absolutely, disperse the crowd. I, I don't see a problem with that at all. If Once cops start getting things like bricks hurled at them, or they start getting attacked, or they start destroying public property, oh yeah, I have no problem with that. In fact, I'm probably a lot more heavy-handed than just about all of my libertarian brethren when it comes to stuff like that, at least based off of what I've seen over the past few days. Like, you see one incident of violence, go ahead, shut the whole thing down, disperse the crowd. I am perfectly okay with that. But you can't just blanketly say, well, we've had a violent protest here the past couple days, so everybody no protest for a couple weeks. No, that's not a thing that you can do. That is an abridgment of a constitutional right, and it is protected under the law. So the ACLU, 100% right on this. However, here's my question to the ACLU. Where were you during the reopen Alabama protest? Now, those protests were wholly peaceful. And yet there were people actually trying to actively stop them. I remember because I was sitting there covering it live when the police officer suddenly decided that the road that the protest was going to take place on, it was under construction, even though that road was freaking brand new and there was not a construction crew nor a piece of construction equipment anywhere within sight. And it just so happened that they put it under construction like, two hours before the thing started. I know because I watched them set up the barricades. I was there. I don't remember the ACLU saying anything about a bunch of people that just wanted businesses to reopen in the state of Alabama a month ago. I don't remember them saying anything about their constitutional rights being curtailed. I don't remember them saying anything to the mayor of Montgomery, Mayor Reed, about why that took place and why MPD was trying to stop the protest I don't remember them saying anything about the other protests, that they had people doing the same thing with them nationwide. I don't remember them saying anything uh, in defense of the protesters in Michigan. I don't remember any of that. So where the heck has the ACLU been this whole time? If, and I agree with them, like I said, protesting is a constitutional right. We have a right to peacefully assemble. That's the wording in the Constitution. Specifically, peacefully assembling, that's what you have a right to. There were no acts of violence there. Nobody wound up attacking a cop. Nobody wound up attacking reporters like we saw in Birmingham. There were no buildings set on fire. No windows were broken. Nobody wound up looting anything like we've seen in, in Birmingham. Nobody tried to tear down public monuments or any of that. None of that happened. Completely peaceful protests, not a single incidence of violence or really even civil disobedience, even though it was wrong for them to shut down the road and, and try to stop the protests like they did. You know what? We still moved the protests. We still tried to abide by their rules. And yet not a single person at the ACLU can bring themselves to come to their defense. That's insane. You see, ACLU, this is why people don't trust you. 
And this is why people do not think of you as a civil liberties union. Because you seem to only care about the civil liberties of people that you politically agree with. When it's people on the left that are protesting, whether or not you agree with the protest, whether or not you think that the protests themselves are justified or see the purpose in them or whatever, this is definitely something that is being primarily supported by people on the left, particularly some of the infiltrators like Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And yet the ACLU, oh, they have no problem sticking up for the rights of those protesters when that happens. But when it's reopen Alabama and it's a bunch of people riding horses, carrying Trump flags, oh, uh, yeah, we, we don't have to comment on that. This is why people don't trust you. And it's the reason that people don't trust the media and don't trust politicians as a whole. Because what has happened is they seem to only care about constitutional rights and constitutional liberties being curtailed when it's people that they agree with. And by the way, I'm not just pointing fingers at the left here. There are Republicans that do exactly the same thing. I guarantee you that you can find several conservative commentators that if they were reading this exact same thing, they would say, no, 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 you should have stuck up for the reopen Alabama protesters, but you shouldn't stick up for these guys. No, if it's a peaceful protest, and there have been some peaceful protests in conjunction with the recent events and George Floyd's killing, and those people ought to be allowed to march as long as they continue to remain peaceful. Now, the second it stops being peaceful, yeah, by all means, disperse the crowd. But when you're talking about a one-to-one comparison of peaceful protest on one side and peaceful protest on the other, I'm 100% in favor of those people being allowed to march, them having that to exercise that constitutional right. But I'm consistent on that. Most people aren't. And it's people like the ACLU that only show up to fight for a cause that they believe in, they only, they're not really a civil liberties union. They only care about the civil liberties of people that they politically agree with. It's the same thing with free speech. They really only care about free speech when it's speech that they agree with. Well, if you only care about the free speech of people that you agree with, then you don't care about free speech. The whole purpose of having free speech or freedom of assembly or freedom to petition the government The whole point of having those rights is when you don't agree with someone, because only speech that is controversial needs protecting. If everyone agreed with it, then nobody would need to have a right to free speech. This is what drives me up a wall about it. And there was a time when I would give the uh, Civil Liberties Union credit, when the ACLU would come out and defend people that they disagreed with. In the past, really about a decade, that has not happened. They don't stick up for Christians. They don't stick up for people that are trying to exercise their religious freedom. They've basically now become just another arm of the Democrat Party, and that's why I don't trust them, and that's why other people don't trust them either. Because since we're talking about civil liberties, where was the ACLU when Governor Ivey decided to shut down churches? I don't remember the ACLU coming out and saying that that's wrong and people ought to be able to worship and people ought to come together and be allowed to worship as they choose and protecting their constitutional rights then. I don't remember that happening. Where were they when Governor Ivey was doing that? It's just blatant inconsistency all across the board, and that's why I get so frustrated with it. And the fact that there is so much inconsistency 
I really do think that it's the reason that it's become virtually impossible to, to build bridges here. It is so hard to reach across the aisle now because even on things, on issues that you may agree with somebody that's on the opposite side of the political spectrum as you, even on issues like that, it has become nearly impossible to reach across the aisle because you don't trust that they have good motives. You don't trust that they are doing so because they do have a common belief with you. Now, I'm a little bit more bold than most on that, and that's partially because I do this for a living. And I don't mind sticking up for somebody when I think that they are right. But it, the reason that there is a hesitancy of the average person to do so, the reason that the average person looks at this and doesn't want to trust that the ACLU has good motives and really is just sticking up for people's civil liberties is specifically because they know when the tables were turned and it were a group of protesters that they didn't agree with that the ACLU kept their mouth shut. And the same thing is true for people that politically disagree with them. The reason they don't trust their Democrat representative or their Republican representative or uh, their mayors or, you know, whatever, whether it's local, federal, whatever, the reason that they can't trust their, their political leaders and they also can't trust the media is because they know that they only care about it one way. Perfect example that happened earlier this week. We saw CNN, MSNBC, people over and over again coming on those networks and defending the riots. I remember uh, there were even people that were talking about how, well, the riots, you know, we, we're not necessarily condoning the violence, but what we do have to do is come out and understand the reason behind I don't remember them saying any of that stuff when it was the Tea Party. When the Tea Party went out there and actually left cities cleaner than when they showed up, they actually went out and picked up trash that wasn't theirs. And I was at some of those rallies. They tried to paint us as dangerous radicals when the protest just recently happened in Virginia where people were walking around with guns even though they were peacefully assembling. They were carrying which the Constitution allows for. They weren't doing anything that was actually against the law. They tried to decry them as a bunch of dangerous, evil, anti-government radicals. But when people go down and actually tear up a city and are chanting to get rid of the system, down with the system, and they want to destroy America, oh, those guys, we need to understand where they're coming from. You see why it's so difficult to believe that people in the media and politicians are acting in good faith after things like that happen? That's why people don't trust you. And by the way, that should be a lesson to each and every one of us. And that lesson should be, if we want to be taken seriously, if we want to be the kind of person that can build a bridge, that can reach across the aisle, that can say, look, I may not agree with you with everything, but let's talk about this thing that we've got in common. If we want to be that person, we have to be consistent ourselves. Because if we are not able to do that, then they will have the same distrust of us that we have of politicians in the media because they can't stay consistent. And so as much as I enjoy, and I think that it's appropriate to rail on the ACLU for not having a shred of consistency or integrity in their organization, 
I also think it's important to remember that that should be a lesson to us to make sure that we take painstaking measures to ensure that we have the consistency that they refuse to have. Let's not be like the people's like, well, they wouldn't stick up for me, so I'm not going to stick up for them when their civil liberties are being abused. No, it's more important when they refuse to be consistent that we decide and make a choice and do the hard thing to remain consistent as often as humanly possible. And so I think that that's really the lesson for all of us. Ultimately, since... Ultimately, specifically because there are incidents like this and people that refuse to stick up for the constitutional rights of people that they disagree with or when they, there is a message being portrayed that they don't like. Specifically because there are so many people that are going to do it, it is important for us to make sure that we are the reasonable voice in the room, that we are the consistent ones. All right, uh, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment on tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. I didn't touch anything, I swear. For today's edition of Breaking the Internet, This meme has been going around, and it has several different forms, several different iterations, and I've heard people making this statement, not necessarily in meme form, just in text. There's been a lot of tweets about it. But since it's such a common argument, I'm going to go ahead and take a look at this one. Let's go ahead and look at this. So it's one of the gym memes from The Office, and you can see there that it says, but the protesters were destroying property, And then the next slide there is the Boston Tea Party. So basically what it's trying to do is make a comparison between the protests that are going on and people saying, well, the the riots going on now, those are not appropriate because property is being destroyed. And he's saying, well, but they destroyed property in the Boston Tea Party. Now, that is a wildly incorrect comparison for a number of reasons, but we're going to go through really three primary contrasts that make these two incidents, the riots have been going on in the past few days, and what has been going on uh, here, or, or what was going on during the Boston Tea Party. The first contrast is the context in which these events take place. So that's really important, what led up to the riots and what led up to the Boston Tea Party and and are the Boston Tea Party and these riots the same because property was destroyed. So let's look at the contrast. First of all, a completely different situation. Patriots had been trying for over 25 long years to address the government. They've gone back and forth. And remember, this is a time where you couldn't just shoot them an email. They had to send letters, which would take months to deliver and then take months to get a response. And so this was a long, tedious process that the Patriots in America and in the colonies had been really over the course of about 20 to 25 years with the different things that have been taking place. They've been trying to get their rights as citizens, which, by the way, were guaranteed to them, not in the form of a constitution, but their rights as British citizens not just the rights that they gained after establishing the Constitution many years later, they were asking for the rights that were already guaranteed to them by England's law 
that they were being denied. And so what they did was over the course of those 25 years, they, they constantly tried to get all of their rights uh, allowed and, and to get a representation in parliament to no avail. And they tried over and over and over again. They had tried every peaceful means that they could think of, still got nothing, still England continued to pass laws that were tyrannical over them, that took away their personal rights, rights to property, rights to privacy, so on and so forth. And after 25 long years, it culminated in uh, the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party and a, a few other events, and then eventually Lexington and Concord and the Revolutionary War. So that's one thing that's really, really different. The George Floyd thing, th that happened just a few days before the riots started to break out. In the Patriots case, it had happened over the course of roughly 25 years. The second part here is that they had no representation to create the change that they wanted. Unlike the citizens of the various cities that have seen riots, Birmingham, Dallas, uh, Minneapolis, uh, LA's had several big ones, over and over again, the difference here is that regardless of whether you think that the system is working against you, even if you think that some of the things that the protesters and you know, in some cases, rioters are calling for are good, or even if you do believe that there are genuine injustices that have taken place, the difference is each of those people still get to vote. They still do have a peaceful means of transformative change, whether it's their city mayor, their elected officials in Washington, their officials at the state level. They have multiple different ways to make the changes that they want happen. The citizens in Boston were completely backed up against a wall. They had no representation in Parliament whatsoever. They could write angry letters, but that was about the extent of their power. They didn't have the ability to vote anybody out of office. They had no way to affect the laws that they were governed by. The, you also have to remember that the Townshed Acts and the Tea Act of 1773 was a part of the law, not contrary to it. Now, as horrible as what happened to George Floyd was, and it was, let's also remember that it is illegal that the officer of the law who was operating under the name of the law did so contrary to the law. That's the reason that he is currently being tried for third and second degree murder and manslaughter, and the other police officers that were standing there that did nothing are also being called into question and investigated. Because what happened to George Floyd was against the law. What the Boston Tea Party protesters were protesting were things that were written into the law. It was the official law of the land that the taxation without representation was going to take place. And they were protesting it despite the fact that they were being taxed, they felt unjustly. And so that was actually a part of the system they were protesting against, not something that was a outlier or an anathema to said system. Now, you also have to remember that Parliament did pass the Tea Act on April 27, 1773. Remember that the Boston Tea Party took place on December 16, 1773, so eight months later. And also keep in mind, that what that means is they had a lot of time to think this out, to try to get the British government to stop, which they did through peaceful means, through addressing these problems, telling them that they were not going to do this, uh, all of these things. And it was only eight months later 
that they started doing this. With the George Floyd protest, that happened virtually overnight. George Floyd, the, the video of it released, it got picked up by the media, and literally within about, I, I think it was about 72 hours at the first protest, really started cropping up. There was a lot of time and deliberation and asking questions, okay, what are the other ways that we can do this? They looked at alternative options. They, like I said, had been trying to get their rights under the British Constitution of the time for over 25 years at this point. And so it was very pointed, very deliberate. With these, these are riots that are basically just coming out of nowhere. It's very impulsive. It's very emotional driven. It's not something that was carefully contemplated and thought about where they observed all of the angles. So that's another really big difference in the context here. And what's really insane here is that George Floyd is going to get justice. I mean, I, I hope that he is, and he's already had the person that killed him. He's already being tried, as I said, for both third-degree and second-degree murder and manslaughter. So all of those three charges are currently pending. He is The officer that was responsible for that has already lost his job. There's other police officers that are going to be investigated as a result of this. All of that is happening. When the Boston Tea Party happened, the Tea Act of 1773 was in effect. It was still in effect. And yes, it actually went into effect the night that the protest took place because it was passed several months earlier, eight months earlier to be exact. And then on December 16th, that was the day that it was enacted, which is the result, uh, which resulted in the Boston Tea Party. And so one really big difference here, and, and one thing that I see is very, very odd, is that everybody keeps chanting, justice for George Floyd, which I'm in favor of, but I'm also looking at it and going like, but he's, he's going to get justice. The officer that wronged him and killed him is going to face justice, which is the right thing to happen. And so one thing that's wildly different in this is that the things that the rioters are protesting is actually already coming to fruition. In the case of the Boston Tea Party, England had absolutely no interest in, nor was there any indication that they were going to either let up on the tea tax or grant them representation. Neither of those things were even close to happening when the protest took place. And so that's another big difference here. The second big contrast, when we're looking past just the context and what led up to it, the actual event itself, is that the execution in these two things, completely different, could not be more different. So the tea that was indeed destroyed in the Boston Tea Party, uh, it was obviously ruined, and there was financial damages that took place there, but there was no damage done to the ships, there was no damage done to the ports, there was no damage done to the town. Remember that the East India Trading Company owned the ships and the, the ports that they were docked in, and yet there was no damage to them. They specifically wanted to destroy the tea because the tea tax is what they were protesting. They weren't protesting ships. They weren't protesting anything else. They didn't burn down the town. They specifically were protesting the tea, and because of it, it was very targeted. Destroying your local O'Reilly Auto Parts or Target because of something that a, a single police officer, and I guess the three people around him, but a police officer did, when the business owners and the people that work there have nothing to do with the injustice that took place, doesn't make any sense. 
And that's why in the Boston Tea Party, they specifically only targeted the things that they were, t- they were protesting. They made sure to avoid any property damage to anything other than what they were specifically protesting. And it's also important to understand, too, that when you're talking about the tea that was destroyed, that was tea that was, in a roundabout way, directly owned by the British government at the time. The East India Trading Company was technically a private company, but it was a private company that was owned and sanctioned as a monopoly by the British government. This is something that a lot of people don't understand because they don't know the history of the revolution, but at the time of the revolution and when it took place, something that was really important to know is that mercantilism was common at the time. And mercantilism is basically a bunch of companies that are sanctioned and essentially run by the government. Kind of think of it in the way that AT&T was in the 1950s, where technically AT&T was private, but the government at the federal level had mandated that they're the only phone company that is allowed to operate. And so, yeah, technically they're private, but the government basically gave them the go-ahead to become a monopoly and actually works with them to continue their monopoly and establish it. That's pretty much the relationship that was going on between the East India Trading Company and the British government. And so they were essentially one entity, even though they were kind of technically different. So understanding the relationship between the company that owned the tea and the British government itself really helped shed light on the reason they did that. Now, the tea lost did result in what would have been a loss of approximately $1.7 million today. And the reason that's important to know is what they were trying to do is basically use those losses to offset any gain that they would have made from the taxes, basically saying, if you're going to do this to us, we're going to make sure that you lose money instead of gain it. We're going to make sure that any benefit you would have from taxing us, unless this stops, is going to be done away with so that you're not profiting off of taking advantage of our rights. That specifically was the reason they did that. It wasn't this mindless, random violence that is going on in cities across our country as a result of this. In fact, the only incidental property damage that was not the tea that was destroyed in the Boston Tea Party was a single padlock. That's it. And that padlock, by the way, was replaced by the Patriots at their expense the very next day. They broke it to get to the tea, they got rid of the tea, and then they replaced the padlock the next day. That's how careful they were to ensure that no incidental property damage took place, that they were not there to create some kind of unruly riot or anything like that. They were specifically there to protest the tea party, or sorry, to protest the tea tax, and that's what they did. It was incredibly surgical in terms of what they were trying to target. And it's also important to note that there was no violence between them and the British soldiers or the Loyalists. So no redcoats were injured, no Hessians were injured, There was nobody that was just loyal to Britain that was living there in the American colony of Massachusetts. None of that happened. They didn't hurt anybody. In fact, the only person that was injured during the Boston Tea Party was a guy named John Crane, who was struck accidentally when they were throwing some of the tea overboard. So he did get popped in the head. So it was one of the protesters that was there protesting that accidentally got smacked in the side of the head with one of the crates, and he's the only person that got hurt. There was no violence that took place 
at the Boston Tea Party, unlike the incredibly horrifying footage that we've seen here recently of these riots where random people like that guy in Dallas that was basically stoned to death, even though he, he did survive, but he's in, was in intensive care in the hospital. We saw the 70 year old black police officer get murdered the other day. And there was video footage of that as well. Uh, there have been lots of people injured and hurt by this. And, and sometimes people that were actually in the protest, sometimes peaceful protesters, sometimes people that were just standing around in the wrong place at the wrong time, random acts of violence. I was watching a video just the other night of protesters just run up to an old man and just smack him in the face for no apparent reason. And so this is something that stands in stark contrast to them as well. And it's also important to remember that they didn't steal the tea. They destroyed the tea because they wanted the damages to be felt, but they didn't take it. They didn't take it for themselves. They weren't getting anything. They weren't gaining anything out of it. It's not like with you saw the Nike store where a bunch of rioters cleaned that out. It's not like that Target where you saw people walking out of theirs with TVs and different items. The Boston Tea Party patriots, the Sons of Liberty, they didn't steal anything. And in fact, they specifically didn't want to steal anything because they didn't want it to be understood that what they were doing was motivated out of greed or some kind of self-interest. They wanted to send a message, hey, this is wrong and we want to make clear that it's wrong, but we don't want to profit off of it or make it seem as though that we're getting something out of it because that would taint the message that we're doing this for a reason other than the fact that our liberties are being abridged. And so that was wildly different than what we've seen the past few days. And another thing, too, the Sons of Liberty were both organized and had a unified message. They all knew what they believed. They knew why the other people were there. I'm sure that they didn't agree on absolutely everything, but they did agree on these fundamental truths and the same. You see some of the protesters out there today, and there are some people that are peaceful, good, decent people that I think are misguided and misinformed, but ultimately are good folks that I wouldn't mind having a conversation with. There are also people out there that are extremely militant, anti-capitalist. Army Hammer did an excellent expose talking to some of the protesters saying that we should basically burn down America, restart the whole thing. People saying that we should go out and kill all the cops. I mean, just horrible, evil things. And so the difference here is the Sons of Liberty, they all knew why they were there. They had a unified message. They were very organized, very precise, and had all of this stuff planned out. Here's the third contrast. The third contrast is the desired result was completely different. And partly, partly admittedly, that is because it seems like who, what the intended desire is depends on who you ask in the riots that we've seen over the past few days, but that was not the case with the Sons of Liberty. The Sons of Liberty wanted either reconciliation with Britain, and that was a viable option. They said that over and over again, that they were fine with remaining British citizens as long as Britain decided to extend the rights that they had justly, uh, that they had justly been given by God. As long as Britain understood that and respected that and changed their behavior, they were perfectly fine with reconciliation and remaining British citizens. But they were also fine with making sure that they secured those rights themselves if England refused to do so. And we know eventually that is, of course, what did happen. We don't see any clear-cut messaging like that from the rioters. When it comes to the rioters, you have people like Antifa and Black Lives Matter, at least the leadership 
of Black Lives Matter. I want to be very clear on that. I think there's a lot of, as I just said, rank and file people that are actually probably good, decent people that are just misinformed. But when it comes to the leadership of Black Lives Matter, they are violent radicals. There's a reason that on the corporate level, at the leadership level, Black Lives Matter has not denounced the riots. There's a reason that Antifa is out there instigating the riots. And so the people that are involved in this, wildly different, want a violent socialist revolution and overthrow of the American system. That's completely different than what the Sons of Liberty wanted. Now, they did engage in a violent overthrow of the British government, but they weren't anarchists. That's the reason that the American Revolution was so radically different than every other revolution in human history. One of the reasons that their revolution worked and stuck is because they already had people ready to govern from day one. They didn't want anarchy. They didn't want to burn everything down. What they wanted was to have the leadership that they had chosen, their local governors, their local sheriffs, their local mayors, that were already living in the American colonies with them, to be allowed to have more jurisdiction and, and more ability to protect the citizens' rights than they were currently be, been given. They didn't want to be ruled by a tyrant that had no interest in what they thought from 3,000 miles away. That's the difference. And that's the reason our revolution worked. We already had government structures in place. We didn't want anarchy. We didn't want there to be no police. We didn't want there to be no system. By the way, the latest hashtag from Black Lives Matter is hashtag defund the police. They want anarchy. They want to burn the system down. The Sons of Liberty wanted the system that was already in place in the form of their local government to be given more power and the British government to abdicate its power if it refused to give them representation. That's the difference in the two. The desired result was completely different in these two scenarios. So that's it. They're different in historical context and what was going on and what led up to them. They're different in the actual execution and what happened during the protest. And in, the, in one case, the riot. You certainly couldn't call what happened at the Boston Tea Party a riot. And then third and finally, they were different in what they wanted. And so really, I think it's laughable that they're comparing these two things as though they are the same. Anybody comparing these unruly, uh, unruly anarchistic riots that are going on in cities across America is either completely ignorant of what is going on during these riots or completely ignorant of history, or sadly, I think this is probably true in most cases, both. Anyone that is saying that these are the same thing or could even be realistically compared, they just don't know what they're talking about. All right, let's go on to the daily dose of stupid. No, oh, you've messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And on today's daily dose of stupid, this is somebody that I honestly never really thought that I would have to do a daily dose of stupid for. General Mad Dog Mattis. Now, I have a great deal of respect for General Mattis. But I also have a responsibility to when somebody does something stupid, they got to be featured on the Daily Dose of Stupid. That's the way that it works. And even if it's somebody I generally agree with and generally like, when they're wrong, they're wrong. And I'm going to call them out on it. So General Mad Dog Mattis, uh, he had this 
piece where he basically denounced Trump in the Atlantic. And if you want to read it, by all means, go to it. We'll, we'll show a little clip of it here in a second. But his repudiation of Trump revolves around this threat that Trump made a couple of days ago to evoke the Insurrection Act. And here's my beef with that. I don't want presidents willy-nilly marching military into our towns and municipalities. That is not a thing that I desire. It is not a thing that I want. I'm not one of these, uh, you know, the second there's any hint of insurrection that you immediately go to that. But here's the thing that I can't get over. If now is not the time to use it, when? If we have in multiple United States cities across the country, we have violent mobs going in, destroying property, and calling for the downthrow of the American system, I don't understand when there would be an appropriate time to use the Sedition Act, sorry, the Insurrection Act, if not right now. Can you come up with a scenario that would be more fitting if that were the case? Because the military already has authority to fend off foreign threats. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. The reason that there is a higher bar to clear, the reason that the Insurrection Act of 1807 was invented and the reason that it was put in there is to say, look, if there is a domestic threat that crops up within the borders of the United States that also threatens the overthrow of the system, the president does have the right to use military force against them. And remember that what President Trump specifically threatened to do, and it was a threat. I, I know there are a lot of people who are saying, well, it wasn't a threat. Yeah, it was a threat. That doesn't mean that the threat is necessarily bad, but it is a threat. Don't say that it's not a threat. It's definitely a threat. What he was saying there is, if this continues, and, and this is the second qualifier, if your local governors and local mayors continue to do nothing, then, so it's an if-then statement. If these two qualifications are met, it continues to go on, and if your local leaders refuse to do anything about it, they refuse to protect their own citizens, then I will use the Insurrection Act and step in and use military force. How is that inappropriate? If you have an enemy that, like Antifa, like Black Lives Matter, that at least at the top levels, I'm not saying every single person that is marching, but especially at the top levels, that are saying that they want an overthrow of the capitalist system, you have that going on. They want to overthrow the American government. And you're saying that if, if your local leaders and local police force and local National Guard or whatever, and, and I would prefer for them to handle this. Don't get me wrong. I'm still a federalist. But if they refuse to do that, if the governors refuse to mobilize the National Guard, if your mayors refuse to stop these riots and, and protect property and protect private citizens, what else is the president supposed to do? Explain to me how that is an inappropriate response to what is going on there. This is a domestic threat. Remember that the oath of office for the President of the United States is to protect it from all threats, both foreign and domestic. Well, if this is not the time to step in, then I don't know when is. And I don't think that that time has quite shown up yet in the sense that I think that President Trump was right to say, Let's give it a, a few days, but if it doesn't stop soon, then I'm going to step in. 
I'm glad that there's a little bit of a waiting period, but considering that we've already been going through this for about a week now, I'd say that time has pretty much come. And if this thing cannot be stopped by the National Guard or the others, it makes sense for the United States military to step in. I'd rather they not do that. I'd rather, you know, hang back for a little bit, but we have to understand that the threat of people that want to destroy America is real. It is here. They are open about it. They're not hiding it. They're calling for the overthrow of the government. They're calling for the overthrow of capitalism. And when you had people literally trying to break into the White House and having 500 Secret Service agents getting injured over the past few days, trying to defend it, that's anarchy. And that's part of the reason that our military exists is to protect us from threats like that. I know that usually... They deal with outside threats, and that's good. I'd rather them normally be handling that and letting our police officers and uh, things of that nature handle the local threats. But if that fails, or if it, uh, if the people in charge, you know, this is worse, refuse to act, then that is the reason that the military exists. And also, let's also keep in mind that this is not something that is completely unprecedented or unheard of. That was the shtick that a lot of people in the media were trying to do. It's the shtick that, even though he didn't right out say it, General Mattis kind of alluded to in his piece, saying that this is something that is just so wildly unprecedented. Well, no, it's not. It's even happened in my lifetime, and I'm only 30 years old. In 1992, President George H.W. Bush used the same act, the Insurrection Act of 1807, to stop this in L.A., in response to the L.A. riots. And the same thing was going on there. The people in charge, the people locally, refused to enforce that, refused to make sure that that was going to stop, and so George H.W. Bush stepped in and stopped it. And by the way, we see a very similar thing happening, uh, even though it, it didn't wind up going quite this far, George W. Bush almost did the exact same thing in response to Katrina. Because you remember there was a big kerfuffle between him and the mayor of New Orleans. And so this was something that the president almost used at that to get relief to the people that were there. But regardless, they act as though this is something that is just so wildly out of the blue and no president has ever done it. I, I even saw articles that were wrong saying that it has never been used in the, the 20th century. Uh, one said, I think what happened is someone saw that it had been never, never been used in the 21st century, which is accurate. Because, like I said, 1992 was the last time it was invoked. Uh, but I think that they, they misquoted it and <laughs> put the 20th century. So, funny little mistake there. But anyway, uh, so all of this is happening. And Trump did say that he was only going to use it as a last resort. And so I don't really understand what General Mattis is upset about considering all of these things. And the worst part of this whole article, and the one that made me bleed through the eyes, was this here you can see. This quote from his piece, this is General Mattis in the Atlantic. And you can see there that in this article, he says, I, I, I can't even, it's hard for me to even read it because of how angry this particular uh, statement makes me. But here it is. Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Are you freaking kidding me? Did you sleep through the entirety of the Obama years? Now, remember that 
I'm just looking at it through the lens of my lifetime, but what General Mattis said was in his lifetime, and he's significantly older than I am. I don't remember Nixon because I wasn't born yet, but he does. I don't remember, well, would he have been alive? Yeah, he would have been alive during Lyndon Baines Johnson. But he was alive for that. I mean, heck, even you could go back to, to a great degree, Jimmy Carter. That's the reason that he was kicked out after four years is because he was such a controversial figure. I, I don't understand that rationale at all. Did he just forget about Barack Obama? Are we just going to pretend that those eight years didn't happen? Or, or what, did he buy into the propaganda that the media was peddling, that Barack Obama was perfect and never did anything wrong and was the second coming and never had any scandals or never had any issues and there was nobody that didn't like him. Are you freaking kidding me? Remember, I mean, this is the guy who had the whole controversy with Jeremiah Wright, somebody that was saying that America deserved 9-11 and that was the person who Barack Obama sat in his pew listening to his sermons for 20 years. And then you had Eric Holder, the attorney general that was saying that he was the president's wingman, specifically covering for the president. Let's also not forget Van Jones, the self-proclaimed communist that worked for the White House. And people talked about that for, you know, the entirety of Van Jones being in there. It was so controversial that eventually he had to be dismissed. Uh, what about the IRS scandal where President Barack Obama used his power of office to specifically go after his political opponents in the form of the Tea Party, investigating them, making sure that they couldn't get their nonprofit status, holding up their request to do so, trying to intimidate them, and did so right around the time, specifically, that he was up for re-election. And talking about going after political enemies, let's not forget all of the new things that have just surfaced here recently with Michael Flynn. I mean, Barack Obama is still dividing people, even though he's been out of office for nearly four years now. Don't give me this crap about he's the only one that doesn't unite the American people. Give me a break. And I mean, I could go down the laundry list here. He also remembered that when Barack Obama took office, the average American, and this is including across all of racial lines, said that racism was still a, uh, is still a significant problem in this country. Only 2% of Americans, when surveyed, said that they thought it was. By the time he left office, it had grown to about 20%. So Barack Obama spent the vast majority of his time stoking the flames of racial intolerance and uh, divisions along racial lines. Let's not forget the way that he was absolutely horrible on gun policy, actually put out policies that would prevent senior citizens from getting firearms just because they had somebody helping them with their finances. And let's also not forget international apology tours where he was basically going out and saying that America is the worst country and that we have so much to apologize and we're basically the cause of all the world's problems. Signing on to the, what was that, the G20 Paris Climate Accords when he did that and all of the division that took place as a result of that. Remember that he also lit up the White House in rainbow colors to celebrate the Obergefell case in saying that gay people can get married in all 50 states now. That wasn't controversial? I mean, has Mattis been living under a rock this whole time? The DOJ siding against Christians? 
I mean, let's not forget the whole Obamacare thing where they passed it when almost 70% of the American population was against it. And Barack Obama still signed it into law, even though there were an awful lot of people that voted for him that didn't even like that law. And when it comes to the enforcement of that law, going after Christians for their religious beliefs, going after the little sisters of the poor, a bunch of Catholic nuns that don't want to provide birth control to their employees because it's against their religion, going after people like the the guy that owns Masterpiece Cake Shop, Jack Phillips, going after him because he doesn't want to make a cake that glorifies gay marriage because he's a Christian, a guy that doesn't even make Halloween cakes because he doesn't believe in it. All of that apparently not controversial, didn't divide anybody. Super uniting. Very uniting force, that Barack Obama. That's not even getting into the Hillary Clinton email scandal and the whole thing with Benghazi Benghazi, where we found out later that they were lying to us. That's not including the Iran deal. That's not including him snubbing uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and other allies. I I mean, the list just goes on and on. The idea that he was a uniting force and Trump isn't, look, Trump's a divisive figure. No intelligent, sane person thinks that Trump is not divisive. But let's not pretend that he showed up out of nowhere. Donald Trump is specifically an answer to Barack Obama. Barack Obama crapped on half of America for eight years, talking about how they're a bunch of bitter clingers that cling to their God and their guns, they're a bunch of backwards idiot rubes, and telling us that we were a horrible person for telling the average American person that you're a horrible person for not wanting a 35-year-old perverted transvestite from using the same bathroom as your four-year-old daughter. You're a hate monger for doing that. That's why people were like, you know what? We don't even care that he's been divorced three times. We don't care that... Uh, he's horrible with women. Screw it. He's the guy that is going to punch these people back in the mouth. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that's what happened. Donald Trump was an answer to Barack Obama. The reason that we have Trump is because of the way that Barack Obama was and the way that the left and the media treated him with kid gloves. I mean, God knows Trump has his problems. And I do not hold him up as an example of leadership. But to say that he's this uniquely divisive figure in American history when we just got through with Barack Obama? You've got to be outside your ever-loving mind. I don't understand how you can even arrive at that. I don't know what kind of stuff General Mattis is smoking in his retirement, but it's apparently some really good stuff. I mean, toward the end, Barack Obama's own people didn't even like him. And I'm not talking about black people. I'm not using the identity politics here. I'm talking about Occupy Wall Street and people that were mad at him for his drone strikes. Even people on the left thought that he didn't go far enough or didn't like him by the end of this. There were even people on his side that didn't even agree with him at that point. But we're supposed to believe that Donald Trump is this uniquely divisive figure? I mean, yeah, he's super divisive, but let's not pretend that he's the only one or that he somehow just cropped up in a vacuum. (sighs) I can't deal with it anymore. I just can't. The selective amnesia that has been coming out of people 
in the past several years, pretending that Barack Obama was this amazing, pristine figure that never did anything wrong. It just, it bothers me that people forget everything that happened more than 15 seconds in the past. Do you not have an ounce of memory left? I, I, I just don't get it. Let's go to the chaplain's report before I say something I'm going to regret. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today... You know, I think that the operative word, and I hinted at this a little bit in yesterday's chaplain's report, we're, we're going to continue our discussion on the book of First Samuel in a little bit, but I think that in the unique place that we are in America right now, we, we need a little Bible that specifically speaks to what we're talking about here, and I'm going to tell you why. Why is there a breakdown in unity? Why is it that human beings right now can't seem to get along or agree with one another? Why is there a breakdown in American unity specifically? Well, I think that one of the best places we could go right now is the Gospel of John and read a prayer that Jesus issues on the behalf of his followers. So this comes from John 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me. Though their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may be believe that you sent me. The glory of which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as I, even as you have loved me. I want you to think about this. In that prayer, Jesus attributes his ability to love and his ability to have unity with his disciples to God. I want you to think about what that implies. Here is Jesus, a perfect, omnipotent being, saying that the only reason that he is able, despite the fact that he's all-powerful, to love and have unity with his followers is because he learned it from his father. Is because his father imparts upon him the ability to do so. What does that tell you? That even a literal God like Jesus Christ, his ability to love and have unity comes from the Father. I mean, that's mind-blowing. What that means is, if even Jesus Christ can't get there without the Father, what chance do we have? Do you really think if even he can't attain unity with his followers and even he can't love the way that he should, 
in the absence of God the Father's existence, do you really think that we have a chance at that? The answer is obviously no. And that goes back to the core of all this. There is no such thing as unity outside of God. It doesn't exist. Can not be done. Now, there are definitely people that can be united in a sense. I mean, look, for example, the Tower of Babel. One of the things that is expressed there in the book of Genesis is that when they all gathered together, there was nothing that they set their mind to that they could not accomplish. That's a paraphrase. I think I'm using the ESV version of that. But anyway, so it is certainly true that in a limited sense, there can be some sense of unity. But remember also that in that same story, in Babel, that it talks about mortar being what held the tower together. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word for mortar is also the Hebrew word for materialism. So in other words, what bound those people together was materialism, stuff, the world. Greed, avarice, whatever you want to call it, that is what allowed them to stay together. They were able to work together for a common cause, but they weren't able to keep it together, and they weren't working towards any place where they could have stayed together, even if God hadn't confused their language, even if that had not happened. Do you really believe that a people that were all that greedy and in it for themselves and wanted stuff would have been able to stick together for very long anyway? By the way, that happens and plays out in the Scripture over and over and over again. We see time after time, whether it's a king of Israel or another group of people, that when it's a whole bunch of villains getting together, they are so self-interested, they are so interested in what happens to them and getting what they want, that eventually they wind up betraying their allies. They can only stick together for a certain amount of time. That's not true unity. If we as a country want to get back to a place of unity, there is only one path, and that is God. You know, people that are maybe libertarian-minded atheists or whatever that may be listening to the show, and I'm glad you're here. I appreciate having the conversation with you. But I'm telling you right now, you can't get to a place of true liberty. You can't get to a place of true unity with one another where we are united as a people unless God is at the center of it. Can't be done. It's been true since the revolution, and it's true right now. You cannot have unity without God being at the center of everything. Because if even Jesus can't get there without the Father, what chance do we have? Furthermore, remember that, yes, unity does only come from the Father, but that's in part because unity must be based in truth or else it winds up falling to pieces. One big problem that we're having going on, and I just gave you a perfect example of it in the Breaking the Internet segment where we were talking about the contrast between the Boston Tea Party and the riots that have been happening in the past few days. What was the difference? Why were the patriots in the Boston Tea Party united while the others weren't? Well, first of all, they had God at the center of their belief system. So that was a big contributing factor. Remember that the leader of the the Sons of, the, or, well, Sons of Liberty, I don't know why I blanked on that for a second there, uh, with Samuel Adams, who was a pulpit minister. But that's not the only thing. Remember that unity must be based in truth. They had studied. They had done their own homework. They understood how men were free and how men were oppressed all throughout history, and they knew which one they wanted to work towards. There's an awful lot of ignorance going on 
with the riots. There's an awful lot of people that think that police officers, for example, shooting random black people is just a common occurrence. It happens practically every day and they almost always get away with it. I mean, there are all kinds of lies floating around out there, and the movement is not based in truth. We have to be based in truth in order to find unity. If it's not based in truth, it's going to fall apart. In the same way, what we were talking about a second ago with Babel, materialism only takes you so far. Greed can only motivate you so much. Eventually, you need truth. You need something real and objective and good at the center of all that in order to move forward. Another thing that is also true is that unity requires a common goal, like serving God, like serving the Father, like as a general rule, just being a free society. We need something that we're all working towards. Right now, we don't have that common goal. Right now, we have at minimum two, I would say there are actually more forces at work here, but at minimum two parties that could not be more fundamentally different, and they want the country to look two completely different ways. One wants a full-on socialist state where the government basically takes care of its citizens and everything is run by the government. The other side wants one virtually, and I'm not talking about the parties here, I'm talking about the people in general. Uh, There's another group of people that want the government to just leave them alone. And let's take care of ourselves and keep the government off of my back. Those are two completely different incompatible, incompatible worldviews that cannot possibly coexist. And that's why people cannot come together if their worldview and what they think the country ought to look like is that radically different. And also, and this is the really sad part, unity also takes work. It takes a willingness to commit yourself to unity and to make certain personal sacrifices in order to do so. Remember what we were talking about a second ago that when you get a group of villains together, they're all so self-interested that eventually their, their unity breaks down because of something that they want contradicts what somebody else wants? See, when you attain perfect unity, the kind of unity that Jesus is calling for in this prayer, the unity of the church, when that happens, that only happens because there are people there willing to make personal sacrifices in the name of unity. When it comes to, for example, what Paul tells us in his epistles, he says that we are to esteem each other better than ourselves. Well, that means we have to take what we want and what we think is right sometimes. And I'm not saying objectively right. I'm talking about, you know, some, something that's a matter of opinion. We sometimes have to put that off to the side and do the right thing and, and do what it's going to take to reconcile ourselves with our brother to put our pride and our arrogance and our desire to always be right aside in order to take a step back. That's what that's going to take. There's very, very few people that are willing to do that in the society that we have now, sadly. Wish that weren't the case, but it just is. And so that lack of willingness is also another factor that is contributing to our lack of unity. But the thing that is so important to remember in all this, and this is what I'll leave you with this week, Unity is so much more than just being together. Lots of people are together that aren't unified. I mean, you can see, for example, this happens sadly all the time with marriages, with having the high divorce rate that we do now. There are people that are there living in the same house, oftentimes having the same kids, but they aren't unified. And I'm not going to get off into the weeds or, or say exactly how that happens or why it happens. That's a story for another day. 
But suffice it to say, that is an example of how people can be together, but not unified. We're all sharing this great big country. We're all sharing the land. We're all sharing the space. We're all here. That alone is not going to get us there. And sadly, most of the things that we're doing now are driving us further apart. Vengeance is never going to bring unity. Can't be done. Has never happened in the history of mankind. Where vengeance brought people together. You cannot act as an avenger to somebody and then be in unity with them. Reconciliation is what we should be working toward. That's what Dr. Martin Luther King wanted. That's the thing that was in the pledge that he made every single one of the people that marched with him sign. And he said, if that's not your goal, we don't want you. If that's not your goal, you need to go somewhere else. We need to say that in the church as well. If your ultimate goal is vengeance and not reconciliation, this is not the place for you. I'm sorry, you'll have to find somewhere else. So let us make reconciliation our ultimate goal. Because that's the only way we're going to find unity. Yes, there are hurt feelings. Yes, there are, there are genuine grievances out there that are real. Some, I think, are manufactured, but there are some that are real. And so because of that, what we need to do is make sure that we commit ourselves to reconciliation. Because sadly, the world has enough vengeance already. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.